changed since I moved to the city. Liddy, let them know that my roots in Mississippi. This is a Pedagogue and D Black Digital Black Lit and Composition collaboration. It's a podcast mini-series that amplifies Black graduate student pedagogies, practices, writings, and lived experiences. Every episode of this mini-series is a conversation designed to uplift and celebrate Black teachers, scholars, students. Each episode features a new perspective, and each episode highlights the work of Black graduate students and their family line of scholars. You can check out dblack at dblack.org. You can follow dblack on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. dblack is an online and in-person network of Black-identified graduate students and advanced undergraduate students in fields related to the study of language. I'm your host, Shane Wood. Let's get started. You to love it, turn it up when you in public. I'm my worst critic, you don't feel it, you won't hear it. Had you waiting for a minute just to make sure you were spinning. Last song was I, but this time coming with a vengeance. In this episode, I talk with James Eubanks. James Eubanks is a PhD student with a concentration in composition, rhetoric, and English studies in the Department of English at the University of Alabama. His research interests include African-American rhetoric, particularly in the church, as well as within the context of digital and social media, writing program administration, digital humanities, and composition pedagogy. James, thanks so much for joining us. I want to open up space for you to talk about the racial, gendered, and geographic realities around being a graduate student and being an instructor at the University of Alabama. Yeah, first of all, um, thank you for having me. Um, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm a PhD student um, at the University of Alabama, which is about as deep south as you can get, um, which means, and I'm also um, essentially a native of Tuscaloosa. As a scholar, as a teacher, um, and as a citizen, um, you're constantly sort of in this this very tense sort of um, racial reality. Um, and it's cause, because I think that, um, you know, as a teacher, because the uh, student body is so white, you don't really see flack faces, right? So that changes a lot of like how you may be, how you're perceived, um, how you present material, which is always kind of there. Um, at my school, the faculty is overwhelmingly white and my colleagues are overwhelmingly white. So it's this dynamic that you just, that's very, very difficult to escape that you're constantly having to navigate um, no matter where you are, what you're doing. So that's, you know, that's a tension that's always there. And I think because of that, for me, certainly, and I'm not speaking for any of my other colleagues who are in similar situations, but it meant that in all the work I do, I feel this weight to leave the space better than I found it. Because I, I get the temptation because a lot of my actual students that I teach feel it when I ask them how they want it, how they want me to approach the class. Um, they're very much like, can you just kind of teach us to write so we can not deal with this and get out of there? And I fully understand that, right? And so I imagine that, you know, so if any of my colleagues feel that way, I'm, I understand that. Um, but I think all of the all of this weight sort of led me to want to do work and interact in the space with the intentions of leaving it um, better than I found it. It's, it's interesting because, you know, on day one, you know that... Um, for a lot of your students, there is a very high chance that I am the first Black teacher that they've ever had, which means that 
consciously or unconsciously, there's going to be some bias about my competency, right? So from day one, you're you're immediately like, I've got to make sure that they know that I know what I'm talking about, because the quicker you do that, the sooner that you, I, I feel at least that I can get to actually like teaching. And so I think that, you know, with any composition class for me, no matter who my student population is, you're always trying to, for me, present them with, you know, skills and techniques for writing and thinking that build on the, the practices and processes that they already have, right? Which I think is a point of view that has helped me a lot in terms of, you know, maybe bringing up things that on the surface might be controversial, right? Um, so if I'm talking about, um, you know, language equality in the classroom and beyond, right? If you start with, say, AAVE, then students are, they have no frame of reference that isn't slightly racist um, or that they're getting from some other pop culture thing. But so I, so rather than that, then I may start with like texting. So it's, it's finding some sort of commonality that they already have. Um, so I've found that um, I kind of have to sneak things like that in there um, rather than be kind of overt or as overt as I would probably deep down like to be. And I've found that thinking about it purely in terms of how can I get this across in the most effective way, baby steps kind of like that have been the most effective. James, you served as a grad assistant WPA, and I'm curious as to your observations. In what ways can our field better address pedagogical development and or support grad students? Yeah, I think that um, when I first started, I was like, super excited because I was like, okay, all the things I've complained about, I'm in a position to like fix now. Um, and it, and, there, and there's like little things, right? Like it's for one, our English building was named after this like Klansman for a very long time. It's, it's, they, they've changed the name. And so it's like, so you're, so you're constantly like, we're in that space. It's like, yeah, I'm, re I'm ready to like flip a bunch of tables and stuff. Um, and then you get in there and you get in the, the meetings and you're just like, I found myself being kind of like ground down by the wheels of bureaucracy, just like kind of everybody else. Right. And that's not to say that I feel that I feel that I was effective and things have changed. And there's like, you know, now we've got a um, teachers of color caucus um, at our campus. It's going to long, long outlive, you know, my interactions with the university. So I feel that I was um, successful, but I think that um, it very much firmed up to me that I think the, the number one thing that WPAs or anybody in the academy who's trying to do this um, anti-racist work has to do, um, and it, it's, it's, it sounds like really simple and probably cliched at this point, but there's just got to be more listening, right? Um, I think you have to acknowledge that particularly if you're, you're an all-white administration team, right, that you only think that you understand the, the, the breadth and the depth of the problems that, that your students and your teachers are having. So I think that you have to um, be willing to have those very, very awkward conversations because it's never a good conversation to be like, here's all the ways that you've messed up, right? Because I think that what happens is certainly like programmatically and just using my, my university as kind of a vague example. We had a run there where I think every other week it felt like some undergrads were getting caught on like Snapchat or whatever um, saying like incredibly racist things. Right. And then that was coupled with campus groups bringing, um, you know, avowed white supremacists to campus to speak. And so, of course, the the university, subsequently, our department feel like they've got to do something. Right. So I think that we we aim for all these programmatic changes that are very much kind of like swinging for the fences. But the thing that sort of struck me and my uh, my contemporaries of color on campus was that nobody like ever 
asked us how we were or what we thought or what we thought we should do, right? Um, or what we thought the problems were. So I think if you aren't listening and you aren't opening yourself up to sort of take that 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 lovingly given constructive criticism, right? Because all of us, myself included, we just want it to be a, a better space, right? I've, I've never had a colleague that wasn't willing to to dialogue and work to make it a better space for themselves, right? Because that's just, you know, purely like of self-benefit, right? So I think that if we open it up to, to actually listening and saying like, maybe we can't solve the, maybe we can't solve these problems directly, right? But now all the, the constituents know that we know exactly what the problem is and how they feel about it. Because otherwise you're just dictating to, to students and teachers. That's, that's not really all that different than what's happening to them already. Um, the difference is just that it's coming from people who are purporting to sort of help. So I think just like being more willing to have those smaller, intimate, definitely more uncomfortable um, conversations um, about what the exact problems are and people's solutions who are having to work in these spaces every day um, to fix them. I was thinking about how much programs would benefit from having multiple grad students on departmental committees and listening to their experiences in the program, especially when it comes to policy and outcome initiatives and development or assessment, and really even conversations around course offerings and program decisions, like decisions about oral exams, theses, and dissertations. There's this sort of like weird dichotomy where you know, white administrators feel that like they've heard the criticism loud and clear about how um, people of color feel like they don't want to have to solve all these problems, right? So then maybe it's administrators like, here's this plan that we're doing, right? But I think that, you know, there's a middle ground there, like, because a lot of times when, when like, when you hear about like, here's the changes that we're making, right? They're just, again, like dictated to you. But if you come to a meeting and say, here's what we're thinking, what do you think, right? So it doesn't feel, so it wouldn't feel like if I went to that meeting that I've had to, you know, build my own, you know, ladder basically, right? That now we're dialoguing. I'm like, here's here's what's good about this. Here's what we change, right? Um, which feels way more, what's way less labor intensive than being like, you know, solve this problem. So, you know, black man. And I think opens up dialogue and then shows that, okay, you've thought about this. You're willing to, you know, do your bit. Um, so I think that, you know, finding that middle ground between here's the plan and you come up with the plan because, because you know, definitely not, you know, it's, it's fallacious to think either or, right? So. so I want to jump back to your teaching. You recently taught a class around conspiracy theories that incorporated topics like misinformation during the Trump presidency. Do you mind talking more about that class and these conversations and even the tensions that occurred given the nature of the topics and themes you all explored and given your kind of geographic reality and position at the University of Alabama? I think that that, that class in particular is basically my teaching philosophy and microcosm in a lot of ways, right? Because I wanted to talk about misinformation, but this was a class of 23 students 22 of them were white. Um, so immediately you're just kind of like, oh no, right? Um, so we can't, can't, can't say like, here's the, here's the way that you're, you know, this politician's been lying to you kind of thing, right? Um, particularly as the vast majority of these students were 18, first college course ever. And so just think about myself at 18, I was parroting a lot of the things that, you know, my parents felt about politics, right? Um, so I think that Again, if, if, I, if you come in swinging the hammer, then um, then you're not getting anywhere, right? Because um, particularly there was this 
specific example where um, this class was uh, essentially based around like research. And so I had a student where the, the, their assignment was that they had to find someone online who was telling a lie about water, right? Um, pretty straightforward assignment. Um, but one of my students came with an article from a uh, noted right-wing news source that was talking about Flint, right? So of course, right then that's, you know, like the, the real me is like, okay, I'm gonna tear, gonna tear this kid apart, right? Um, but in that moment, I'm like, okay, like what we wanna do is we want to get them to think about why have they taken this and accepted it, right? So I'm like, so we look at, I'm like, perfect. We put this source on the projector, we go through it. I'm like, who's this author? He tells me, I'm like, why would we believe anything that he says about water, right? So now we're already like breaking down the information that they take in and we're like, why are, why are we accepting it, right? You know, and that's a way that, you know, a moment that could have been incredibly racially tense that, you know, I, I wasn't super happy to have to be, you know, tiptoeing around this, but I think for the sake of what I was trying to do overall, um, you find a different way to kind of, kind of deal with, right? Because this is, this was like week two. So this happens. Most of the students realize what is going on. So that, you know, the, the, the air changes and then you realize that how I deal with this as a black man in this class and what I'm trying to do um, will impact what the rest of this semester looks like when is my boss getting any like crazy emails from parents. Right. Um, and so I think that, you know, and, and that's, and that's too recognizing that, that even as a black man in the classroom, I have a privilege where students do seem more likely to take my expertise for whatever reason <laughs> um, than say like black women, right. Who, who get, who have to deal with stuff like this all the time. And there is no, there is no cutesy way for them to sort of avoid blowback, right? So I think that, um, you know, moments like that were kind of very key to what I was trying to do in the class where you you get them to say, okay, here's this information, why, you know, they felt at the end, I'm not trying to change their minds about politics. I feel like they were very clear about where I stood on a lot of stuff, but I was letting them think what they think while still kind of um, interrogating that, right? And did I change anybody's, you know, minds or political leaning? Maybe not. Who knows? The idea was to kind of get them, you know, thinking about the information that they, they take in um, and misinformation uh, in a way that was maybe like a little less overt. And then too, that was the first class that I ever did um, ungrading in. So they were, they were being graded on a contract. We're in a unique position um, at Alabama where if you're teaching first year writing, in that fall semester, then there's a pretty good chance that you will be the only teacher that your students have any kind of one-on-one -on -one interaction with because they're in these gigantic, you know, 200 seat biology lectures or whatever. So you're the only teacher that like knows their name, that knows anything about them. That is so when I'm using these examples, I'm like, hey, you're into dressage or whatever, right? Like think about, you know, right? So it's like, um, you know, building those, those connections where um, they see that we're not talking about these things because I, I dislike them or think that they're dumb or that they can't, or that they can't discern, you know, good information from bad information, right? It's, they, they see it more as a, I want you to learn and grow and be able to figure these things out for yourself. So. How can the academy support Black teachers, scholars, and students? 
and I think it loops back to, to um, what we were speaking about earlier. I think having those spaces to listen and, you know, realizing that a lot of times we're just, we're just asking to feel supported and um, protected. If I write something and it gets picked up by, by right-wing media, like I just want, I want to feel because certainly I'm, I'm dealing with things online, right? Um, I want to feel that, um, my, de- my department has my back, right? So it's like little things like that, right? I think just like listening and being willing to have, you know, difficult, constructive conversations, um, the, the number one way to support, right? Because that's where you get your very specific to your situation answers to that question, right? Um, because everybody needs different things. So if you want to figure out what the people in your sort of sphere of influence need, then ask them because, you know, sweeping changes are doing what, you know, maybe other universities or other places or professional organizations do, um, isn't going to maybe match the need of your actual um, population of people of color, teachers or scholars of color. Thanks, James. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers, for tuning into this Pedagog and D-Black collaboration. Don't you to love it, turn it up when you went public. I'm my worst critic. You don't feel it, you won't hear it. Had you waiting for a minute just to make sure you were spinning. Last song was I, right, but this time coming with a vengeance. That's my good friend, Raph Peters, a.k.a. Kezo. He's a Houston-based rapper, and that's his single, Liddy. You can check him out on YouTube youtube.com backslash kzo music that's k-z-o-e music